Well, this week, um, usually illustrations, they more come to me as I'm just going about my everyday as opposed to me uh, looking for an illustration. And, and this week, just for some reason, there, I saw an inordinate number of T-shirts and, and signs of this branding. Maybe you've seen it, people wearing T-shirts, keep calm and carry on. And um, I didn't know this, and I just learned this this week, that it was actually uh, the British nation's uh, Ministry of Information in 1939, pre-World War II, uh, their strategy to just raise the morale of the British people as there was impending war. And so they plastered these messages uh, all over uh, the nation. I don't think they had T-shirts back then. They were just murals. But somewhere along the line, someone had a bright idea. as an entrepreneur and thought we could make money of this. Now, one criticism that has come to this message is that, it, it, yes, it raised the morale, but it's too idealistic. And so naturally, there's been uh, people have used this to just... Uh, release some humor and just uh, some levity in their lives. And so here's one. Keep calm and, and be awesome. That, that's the way we're going to carry on. That's the way we're going to just overcome our stresses and our worries in life. But how many of us can just turn on awesomeness on a dime? Uh, some might say that's out of touch. Now here's a very realistic one. Shut up and work harder. Right? Keep calm and carry on. That's tomfoolery. Just shut up and work harder. That's the realist. Here's the pragmatist. There's an actual t-shirt like this. Keep calm and carry a big gun. Right? This is probably from the States and just with their gun culture there. But very pragmatic. Now here's someone who's just raw. And if this is a bit too uh, vulgar for you, I apologize this morning. Um, but screw calm. Just get angry, right? Here's the honest person. Well, in all this, perhaps, I mean, I'm just trying to start with just some brevity but, or levity. And, but behind this T-shirt, behind this, this intro is, is the real uh, place in each of our lives where we need some T-shirt to represent where we're at. There, there could be some phrase that speaks to our situation. And... How many of us, even this past week, long for some calmness in our lives, long for some reprieve, and longing to find that answer and where we can find it? As we consider this longing in our culture story, and in fact it was a nation's narrative in World War II, keep calm and carry on, we we come to 1 Samuel 20, and David certainly was longing for a certain calmness in his life. Just even from the reading, I hope you were able to, to catch and pick up on just the turbulence, the anxiety, the uncertainty. In David's own words, I am just a step from death. How many of us can say that uh, we've been a step from death? Some of us here can, but most of us cannot. And so David certainly, he is someone who could empathize with whatever you are going through today. David is now becoming a fugitive king. Jonathan is showing more and more of his true colors as a loyal friend and willing to forego his uh, status of crown prince and recognize God's chosen one. 
And Saul continues to just unravel, becoming increasingly possessed as this rejected king. And so in 1 Samuel 20, we saw unfold this testing of Jonathan and David of their father Saul, of Jonathan's father Saul, to see, to prove to Jonathan where Saul's heart is really at. And then coming to a head, coming to this fork in the road, where now Jonathan has come to grips with this reality that David is indeed one step from death, and that it's Saul who is just one step away from bringing that death. Now again, in this Bible story, this history, our goal always needs to be, as we're living in 2016, about two millennia after this person Christ has come to this earth, died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and as we continue in this grand story of the church, God raised up his church, he he sent his spirit, and he birthed the church. Our goal each week as we come together in our own times of scripture, reading and meditation and prayer, our goal is to cling ever so tightly, ever increasingly, to Jesus and the gospel. And so we need to ask, what is the gospel story here? And, and, and the big idea that I see here is that the gospel, it tests our allegiances. It tests our attachments. And attachments is a weaker word. Allegiance is, is the stronger word. Where our hearts are for the worse enmeshed with, for the better our hearts are duly committed with, And it would take something drastic to separate our convictions from that allegiance. But the gospel, it tests our allegiances. And and here in today's story, we we see a pattern. We see uh, a a sequence. And first we're going to see Jonathan's confusion. Then we're going to see Jonathan's covenant. And then we'll end by seeing Jonathan's crisis of belief. And so first, first, Jonathan's confusion. The author picks up in verse 1, Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah. Recall Saul had hunted him down. The spirit came over Saul, and he was prophesying, was stripped bare, naked. And from there, that was David's chance as Saul was subdued for David to flee. And he runs off. And somehow there's a rendezvous with Jonathan. And he said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And so here we see David's confusion, but Jonathan being such a good friend of David imports, it just takes on David's confusion himself. And in verse 2, Jonathan replies and he said to him, Far from it. There's the confusion. Far from it. You shall not die. He cannot believe what David is saying. And so they're both confused. And Jonathan continues, Behold, and this is the modern day equivalent. If you grew up in my time, what are you talking about, Willis? Right? Just, this is unbelievable. This, I cannot for one second believe what you are saying. Jonathan is incredulous. My father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And so for all of Saul's delinquencies, there does seem to be a close relationship with his son Jonathan. For all his anxieties, his paranoia, his his illness, Jonathan says here almost affectionately, affirmingly, 
No, that's not my dad. And so perhaps there is a tender side to Saul in the midst of his, his brokenness. But aren't we all like that? And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. Jonathan is confused. And so in verse 3, David continues, but David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks, and even David here is acknowledging that there is a deep love, some commitment, some positive aspect of the relationship between King Saul and, and Jonathan. Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. He's trying to understand Saul. He loves you so much, he doesn't want you to be unhappy. But truly as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. Most scholars, they uh, believe that Jonathan and David were in their late teens. They were a similar age, and that's another reason why there was such an affinity between them. And, and Jonathan seeing this peer, who is everything that he wants to be, aspires to be, and looking up to this peer. And I am pretty certain that teenagers at that time were much more accelerated in their maturity than teenagers today. But here, yet, we, we still see a similar tension. Most teenagers, as they grow up, they get to that point, family or friends. I'd rather just spend the summer with my friends and hang out at the mall or go to Wonderland and, and go on this extended family vacation. And not to say that Jonathan and David are reflective of today's teenagers. I think they were far more mature than today's teenagers. But a similar tension here. Family versus this friend. And maybe still consistent throughout all the ages, we see Jonathan here choosing his friend. But it wasn't just because he wanted to be cool with David. There's another reason. Why would Jonathan choose David over Saul? This, this choice between family and friend. Why would Jonathan choose David over Saul? Because Jonathan knew without any uncertainty that it was about his allegiance. As he was confused, what he knew he had to sort out for himself is, to whom is my allegiance? And the choice was, God's anointed king? We know that that's how Jonathan saw David. It wasn't just a, another great friend. But Jonathan saw in David God's chosen king. Fundamentally, for you and me then, here, this fork in the road for Jonathan, it, we can apply it to our lives. And... This is what all of life comes down to. All of life comes down to navigating our confusion about who is God and who is not. As Jonathan was navigating the confusion of who is God's true king and who is not, for you and me today, as the gospel is held out before us into the world, this is a fundamental, basic life question who is God? Who is the true king of the entire universe in my heart, in my world, and who is not? And like Jonathan, we can find ourselves often confused in life. And I'm confident that most of the time, 
The diagnosis of our confusion is similar to Jonathan's. Just as Jonathan was confused about Saul and his father, no, that's not the father I know. We become confused about the loves in our lives. How many times have you put your hope in someone or something, from small things to great things, and these people that we thought were so certain, these possessions that we thought would make us so happy, these positions and promotions that we thought would define our lives and say, we could say we've arrived, and these pleasures that we thought would just be lasting and, and just electrifying our bodies extended times. How many of these things have we come and they've disappointed us? And they leave us confused. As the poet says, you can have it all, but it's not enough. So what's the remedy? What's the remedy for our confusion? We see the remedy in Jonathan's remedy. What was his remedy for his confusion? He is reminded of his covenant. And just as Jonathan looked to covenant to remedy his confusion... Scripture still calls out to you and me today. And it puts before us a covenant. Now, if the Bible repeats something over and over and over and over again, we should get the clue. Okay, we've got to pay attention to this. And something you see repeated throughout Scripture again and again and again and again is this whole notion of covenant. And so part of your Christian journey, your Christian discipleship, and and if you're a spiritual investigator out there today, I invite you to really consider this this notion of of covenant. And in verse 8, David says, Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you, he's speaking to Jonathan, you brought your servant David into a covenant of the Lord with you. And so between verse 4, where we left off, and we jumped to verse 8, in between there, David and Jonathan, actually David came up with a plan to test Saul. Jonathan, you don't believe me, you're incredulous, but do this. At the New Moon Festival, your dad's going to be expecting me, and give him this reason for my absence. And if he responds pleasantly, then I was wrong, and you're right, and I'll admit it. But... If he responds roughly, Scripture says, if he responds angrily, then you know that I'm telling the truth. And so they they devise this plan to test Saul. And David knows what the result's going to be. And so he says in verse 8, to put it in paraphrase, when you see that your father freaks out, when you see that your father unravels again and shows this insidious anger, this raging temper, At that point, please remember the covenant you made with me in the Lord. Don't side with your father in that moment when you realize the truth of his heart. But remember the covenant you made with me in the Lord. I want you to notice that this isn't just two chums coming together and and saying, you know, let's be best friends, stamp the double locky, swallow the key, and we're friends forever now, BFF. But... David here, he says, no, you made a covenant in the Lord. And so their covenant was holy, was sanctioned, was 
recognized was before God and accountable to God, to Yahweh himself. And so it wasn't just a pact between two good friends, two kindred humans. But David says clearly, we are covenanted in the Lord. So what, what is David stressing here by reminding Jonathan that Jonathan made a covenant with David in the Lord? D- David is preemptively saying, and, and because he perhaps is apprehensive of how Jonathan will react when he sees his father's raging anger and, and murderous threats, David is securing Jonathan to not become wishy-washy, to not just be swayed by his emotions given this new circumstance. To put it in just very common vernacular and everyday words, don't freak out, David is saying to Jonathan. He's saying, remember the covenant, and that's what's going to keep you stable. That's what's going to keep you calm when the circumstance is tumultuous. On a side note that we often freak out, don't we? Something happens in our lives and, and just our spirits crumble. We, we begin to lose perspective. We perhaps even outwardly begin to express anxiety and nervousness. And it spills over onto the people in our lives. It's just a, a terrible ripple effect. We have an inability to, to handle our emotions and it, it often leaves us shipwrecked. And so here, the future of God's will for Israel, for David, and this isn't just for Jonathan to keep calm in this specific situation, but here we see a little pivotal point, actually not so little, a major pivotal point, that the future of God's ultimate salvation story unfolding, it hinges on Jonathan remembering the covenant of the Lord. And staying the course. Just a, a quick reminder of what covenant is then. Covenant, they were more typical during that time of history, what we call ancient Near East history. And it was an arrangement between a greater king, what some might call a suzerain king, and a weaker, lesser king, or a vassal king. And the arrangement was that the greater king would promise certain things, whether it be protection or resources, if the lesser king kept certain stipulations. The closest thing for you and me today would be a contract, but a covenant is much more sophisticated. A contract, if you think of the contracts that you have with your cell phone companies and cable companies, and etc., a contract is really for the purpose of self serving. You want to make sure that you're protected. And actually, that's what the second word should be there. Self-protected, not promotion, sorry. Or, or sorry, the, the third word. And contracts, it's all about self-promotion, that, that you get the best deal possible. And self-protecting so that the other party, if they do something wrong, that we're protected. But a covenant when they were at their best, even between these greater kings and lesser kings, the the point was first a selfless sacrifice on both parts. And so for the lesser king, their glory became 
that of the greater king. They took on the glory of the greater king. But the greater king would enter a covenant with a pure motive to sacrifice themselves truly for this lesser nation as well. And so there was this element of selfless, just prostrating themselves. There was a step of humbling themselves before each other so that they can mutually benefit. And there was a goal for prospering. But it wasn't an ulterior motive and just um, calculating and, and manipulations, but really a mutual interest in each other's greater prosperity. So when we come to this covenant between David and Jonathan, there's an all-important difference, an even better quality about it. And so I want you to notice it. We pick up in verse 14. If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. There we see the difference. And this wouldn't be a part of other nations' covenants between uh, secular kings. There wouldn't be this the stipulation, the steadfast love of the Lord. And this is David speaking. If I'm still alive, sorry, this is Jonathan speaking now. If I'm still alive, meaning my father hasn't even killed me, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. Now he's turning it on David. You remember your part of the covenant as well. That I may not die, verse 15, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. And when Jonathan is saying to David, your steadfast house, because he said right before, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, he's saying, I know that your love for me is the love of God coming through you to me. A story that I will never forget. When I was a teenager, and my pastor at the time, uh, he was a successful businessman in California, and the Lord called him after all his successes. He had amassed uh, all uh, this wealth, and he had a very young family, a wife and a beautiful daughter who was less than a year old. And he had received God's call. And in short, uh, for him, his obedience was pretty much to sell off uh, everything except to move to Toronto. He was from California. And he donated everything to Christian charities. That was the sense of call he had. And he accepted a call to pastor at the church that I was at. And he became uh, my youth pastor and also the pastor over the, the young adults. And not a year into his call there, he was stricken with stomach cancer. And he passed away within a few months. And our church obviously went into shock. And at that time, I, I developed a bit of a friendship with him. And when I visited him on his deathbed, this is what I won't forget. He shared, Albert, all I have is the steadfast love of the Lord. Those were the words he shared. He was only 32. All I have is the steadfast love of the Lord as I leave my wife and child, that's all I have. That's my only hope for them as well. The steadfast love of the Lord. And for myself, as I pass over 
to the other side. Here was someone who was clinging to God's new covenant to him in Christ. To be sure, as life is crumbling around him, as he has nothing left, the one thing that he can say he does have is the steadfast love of the Lord. And so as you hear Jonathan and David's cry, Jonathan's cry to David to not forget the steadfast love of the Lord and the covenant made between them, as you hear Jonathan's cry as a Christ follower today, isn't this why we signed up? Because there was a moment, a strangely warm moment at some point in your life where this horrific cross with a bloodied and tattered man hanging from it, strangely warmed you in the most profound expression of a steadfast love, a covenantal love by God through His one and only Son to you and me. And so our constant heart cry should be echoing Jonathan, do not cut off your steadfast love from me. That's my only hope just as my pastor back in my teenage years confessed to me on his deathbed. I appreciate this heart just having the only hope in, in God's steadfast love all the more because it gives me expression to my ebbing and flowing assurance of faith. Even as someone who's walked with Christ and someone who is endeavoring to be a pastor and to be a leader of a church, assurance and and questions ebb and flow in my heart and mind. My emotions aren't perfect. My thoughts know that Christ's love for me is certain. That the Father's love is certain in Christ. But my emotions, they ebb and flow. They go up and down. And my emotions ask, God, do you really love me? Do you really forgive all my sins? And so God's covenant reminds me that the strength of my faith It doesn't depend on my ebbing and flowing strength and emotions. But the strength of my faith is all about the object of my faith, which is Jesus, who is Jesus, the mediator of this great covenant of the steadfast love of the Lord. So we come to Jonathan's crisis of belief. And we see this in the rest of today's Scripture, the big swath of Scripture from verses 18 to 42. And just to summarize the unfolding events, they play out the test, and we all saw how it ha- uh, just how it ended. Um, Jonathan gives the reason for David's excuse for not being there. And at first Saul gives him credit, okay, perhaps, because there were laws uh, in, in the Mosaic Law, Something might have happened to David to make him unclean religiously, and so he would need a day to become clean, and so Saul is just uh, rationalizing for himself. But then it comes to a head. Why is he not here? And Jonathan, he slips. In the original language, he slips. When he says, David just asked to get away, that word in the original language, it would be the equivalent of you and me, instead of saying that someone had to just excuse themselves, it would be they needed space. They needed to take a break. And so this nuance of some negative nuance there. And he slips, and that triggers Saul. And then Saul just explodes. And we see the Bible's raw authenticity, what 
Scripture translated today in PG terms, uh, you son of a rebellious woman, the actual language there is what you would hear in a street fight. You, you S-O-B and worse. And that's what the Hebrew is actually saying there. And so just on a quick side note, the Bible doesn't hide any brokenness and, and, uh, of man and sinfulness, and it's so raw and authentic. But here is the main point. Jonathan comes to a crisis of belief because as Saul, his father, reacts this way, now what he believes about his father versus what Saul is showing him, now his actual commitment to David is being tested. And so a crisis of belief, it occurs, and just borrowing this from Henry Blackaby, who thinks very well on on this dynamic in, in the Christian journey, he says that a crisis of belief occurs whenever we face a situation that tests our belief in God. And here Jonathan's faith, in essence, was being tested. Do I really believe that God has set aside David as his plan? Or am I going to side with my father? As we follow Christ day by day and you face many crises of belief, the point is now what you do next when you have that crisis of belief, what you do next reveals what you really believe about God. And that's what we see happening with Jonathan here. He's going to have to act. And his next word, his next action, is going to reveal what he really believes about God's plan, whether it's David or not. And so Jonathan responds in verse 32. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan chooses God and his will through David. And so his true faith is revealed in his action by what he says. And so verse 33, now Saul's venom, his his rage is unleashed. He hurls a spear at Jonathan and trying to kill his own son in a similar, the exact same way as he tried to kill David. And the author here is giving us a picture now that in Saul's eyes, Jonathan and David might as well be one and the same. Here's an implication for you and me then. Jonathan Edwards, a different Jonathan, he says, Christ must be made real in the heart. And as we see Saul in his eyes, for all intents and purposes, now seeing Jonathan and David becoming one as he hurls the spear at Jonathan, as he did to David. For you and me today, what this means is, As we place our faith in Christ, there's this wonderful, mystical union that we actually become one with Christ. I'm not saying that we become God and we become part of the Trinity, but we become engrafted. We become abiding. This picture that Jesus himself gives us of the vine and the branches and the fruit. Where does it begin and where does it end? The fathers of the church through all the ages have called union with Christ. And this union happens when Christ becomes real to the heart. That all you have when life and people and perhaps even people, when you truly show your Christian colors, when you truly act on your Christian convictions, 
and live by the gospel and perhaps people will hurl insults or mock you for your passe values. Will you take a joy in being seen as one with Christ, in union with Christ? And will that become your life, your strength? Another poster that uh, the nation of Britain put up in murals and all over in, in conjunction with Keep Calm and Carry On was your courage, your cheerfulness, your resolution will bring us victory. And yes, this was an important message at that time to raise the morale of a nation. But in our day-to-day, can we be honest? Can your courage, can, can, can you muster up an infallible courage? Can you genuinely dig up an unquenchable cheerfulness and a resolution. And can you truly say that in the grand scheme of life, and especially when you face the greatest enemy of life, death itself, and actually there's a greater one beyond that, when you stand before God with your sin hanging over you, can you from deep within yourself dig up everything you can to secure your own victory? You know where I'm going with this. If I could write my own little keep calm and, or produce my own t-shirt, it'd be keep calm and carry on in the covenant of Christ and his victory. Just realizing on the spot that this is really corny and cheesy. <laughs> and I think that's why there's some giggles. But, but the message, the message... The, the, the message is invaluable and the truth. That's our only hope. I don't know if the author meant this, and when we get to heaven, we'll have eternity to at, find out where Christ was really supposed to be seen in all of Scripture, but it's interesting in verse 5 that David is hidden for three days. But for us, we, we actually pushed away Christ for three days. We hid him. We, we crucified him. And as David, his excuse was, I'm going to go to Bethlehem. That's my excuse. But now someone came from Bethlehem, our Jesus. And we can say we have the steadfast love of the Lord because of this Jesus who came. We're about to celebrate through the table. And he gave to us this certain steadfast love of the Lord. So keep calm as you rest in Christ. Let's pray.